You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. If my math is right, I think we're probably about 20 months into this pandemic. 20 months. Can you believe that? Do you remember what it was like before the pandemic hit? Those were simpler times. Maybe that's not exactly true for everyone, but I think I can generally say that it was a lot easier before this pandemic. Holding church services were a lot easier. I mean, don't get me wrong, we absolutely loved coming here, but that turn off the highway, that, that just messed up our church. I think 90% of us actually missed that turn. And that first Sunday we were here, no one talked about Jesus. Everyone talked about that turn. <laughs> Holding church services was easier. Seeing friends and family was easier. Traveling was easier. Life was just a lot easier. See, that's probably how the Israelites felt when they were in the place called Elim. That's how Exodus chapter 15 ends. Now, I'm sure that many of you know the story well and you're familiar with what's going on in the Exodus, but for the sake of context, let me just give you a quick reminder of what's gone on so far in the story of Exodus. I mean, God has done some incredible things up to this point. He took an entire nation that was held captive for 400 years and miraculously delivered them and brought them out from their oppressors. He safely delivered them through the Red Sea He sent the waters crashing down on the enemies. And when they got to the other side of the Red Sea, he turned the bitter waters of Mara into sweet, tasty water. And shortly after that, they were led to Elim. And look at Exodus chapter 15, verse 27, the very last verse there. It says, they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. That sounds quite nice, doesn't it? I mean, considering where they were coming from, uh, 400 years of slavery, this sounds like a little mini paradise. Now, it's not hard to see the hand of God in all of these events. The Lord powerfully saves his people in Egypt. The Lord safely delivers his people through the Red Sea. The Lord miraculously provides for his people in the wilderness of Shur. This is who our God is. This is the God who graciously saves his people and he is worthy of our trust. This characterizes our God. But do you know what characterizes the Israelites through all of this? If there was one thing that stands out about them above anything else, it's their grumbling. Every single time they're confronted with a new difficulty, gratitude goes out the door and grumbling takes center stage. I mean, just think about it. In Egypt, when Moses first showed up and asked Pharaoh or demanded of Pharaoh to let my people go, Pharaoh responded by doubling the workload. And as a result, the Israelites grumbled. Well, I think we can understand that one. But the question we have to ask is, is that a one-time event? Is that a one-time thing that happens to the Israelites? Let's keep thinking about it. The Lord saved them. The Lord brings them out of Egypt. But almost immediately, they find themselves in another difficult trial. 
They have an angry, hostile army behind them, and before them is this impassable obstacle of the Red Sea. And so what do they do in that very moment? They grumble. But what does God do? He delivers them through the Red Sea. And then he sends the waters crashing down on the Egyptians. But then they get to the other side of the Red Sea, and they come to a place called Mara, and they find that the water is bitter. I mean, they're thirsty. They're they're, they're parched. They've been running for a long time. And so what do they do in response to this? They grumble. In every event, in every episode, in every hardship and trial, the Lord has proven himself to be their sufficient savior. I mean, there have been no shortages of divine miracles of God's grace, but their grumbling is deeply embedded in their hearts. The only place where they don't grumble in this part of the story is Elam, the place of 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, the place where it seems quite cozy and quite comfortable. But what happens when the Lord brings them out of their comfort zone? What happens when the Lord brings them out of a place of ease and places them once again in hard and difficult circumstances? a people that ought to be characterized by overflowing gratitude, once again is characterized by the never-ending grumbling of their hearts. I wonder if you caught this when our sister was reading for us. In Exodus chapter 16, in the first 12 verses alone, the word grumble, or a variation of it, is repeated eight times in 12 verses That kind of repetition is meant for emphasis. So I want you to pay attention as we work our way through this chapter together. Let's begin in verse one. It says, they set out from Elam. They're coming out now from their place of comfort and ease. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. Now, that, that little timeline there is important. It, it's telling us that it's only been about a month since the Israelites left Egypt. And, and, and that tells us that everything that God did, all of those miraculous plagues that he sent on Egypt should still be fresh in their minds. I mean, you don't forget something like that in a matter of weeks. And so they, 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 they ought to remember, they, they, they should be remembering all that God did. But as soon as they enter into these barren lands, the wilderness of sin, verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness, to this wilderness, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's fascinating. The the, the Israelites are essentially saying that it would have been better if God didn't rescue them at all. It would have been better if God left them in Egypt where they were eating meat pots and bread to the full, which probably wasn't true, by the way, right? Right? I mean, really, would the Egyptian taskmasters have fed their slaves with meat and bread to the full? I mean, they they considered these Israelites subpar humans. They, they, They treated them like animals. 
You know, I, I think the, the thing that we have to notice here is that there is absolutely no remembrance of their slavery and their oppression in the land of Egypt. None of that, none of that comes up at this point. Or they, they don't recall all the times that they were beaten or where some of them were even killed. Or the fact that they were working their fingers to the bones every single day. No, no, no. They're, they're, they're not thinking with their heads. They're thinking with their stomachs. And in doing so, they idealize the past and they become bitter and grumble against their spiritual leaders. You know, I think it's quite interesting that as soon as hard times come, they automatically assume the worst of their spiritual leaders. Do you, do you see that? I, I, despite all, in spite of all the things that Moses and Aaron did in order to bring the people of Israel out, they still turn on their leaders and they assume evil motives. They think that Moses and Aaron have intentionally brought them out into the wilderness to kill them off by starvation. Well, friends, that's what grumbling does. It distorts reality. They're so focused on their present hardship that they forget their past, but more importantly, they forget their God. Their God who has undoubtedly been there with them all along the entire way. Now, I think as Bible readers, we can get to a place like Exodus 16 and be struck by how utterly foolish and hard-hearted these Israelites were. I mean, come on, Hebrews, what more does God have to do to show you that he is for you and that he loves you and that he cares for you? But you know what? The thing that should really strike our hearts is realizing how this story of the grumbling Israelites is a depiction of who we so often are as Christians. It's easy to have a heart of gratitude when you're in a place like Elim, but what will you do when the Lord leads you out and puts you in the wilderness of sin? What will you do when you find yourself in a difficult place, a trying place, a place full of overwhelming trials? What will you do when the Lord brings us out from a season of ease and comfort and places us in a Covidian wilderness? Will you grumble or will you joyfully trust the Lord? Maybe COVID isn't a big deal for you personally, but maybe there are other difficult circumstances in your life. Are you grumbling or are you joyfully trusting in the Lord, even if he keeps us in this trial for a long, long time? Friends, there are timeless truths that can never change. God is still sovereign he is still powerful. Jesus still sits on the throne today. And that means you don't have to grumble when you're in the wilderness because God has a purpose for you. And God will be present with you. And God will truly provide everything that you need to live in this world. And that's how I want to focus on this text today with those three points. God has a purpose for you. God will be present with you. And God will provide for you. So let's look at Point number one, God has a purpose. Now, what we need to understand is that winding through the wilderness for 40 years isn't exactly the quickest way from Elim to Sinai. And that's where they're going. They're headed to Mount Sinai. And geographically, it should have taken maybe a couple of days, if not a couple of weeks. 
But the Lord had a reason for keeping them in the wilderness for 40 years. You you see, this wasn't just a physical journey. This was a spiritual journey that was meant to sanctify them in the word of truth and purge the evil from their hearts. Look at how God responded to their grumbling in verse 4. It doesn't say, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain down fire and brimstone from heaven. I'm going to crush these complaining, grumbling Israelites for what they're doing. No. The Israelites grumble. And then in verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven. Bread from heaven for you, And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. You see, the Israelites complain, and yet God meets their complaint with compassion. And he feeds them with the bread of angels, That's what the psalmist calls it in Psalm 78. This bread from heaven is the bread of angels and he is feeding his people with this spiritual, amazing, heavenly bread. But but that's not the only thing that's going on here. As the Lord provides, he is going to use this miracle to teach his people in a lesson of trust and obedience. That's what he means when he says, that I may test them. Now, we need to be careful here because God isn't testing them because he's somehow unsure how they would respond. I mean, this is God. He knows exactly how they're going to respond. But the reason why God is giving such detailed instructions, you know, you gather a day's portion for the first five days, and then on the sixth day, you gather a double portion. The reason why it's so detailed was so that through this, the Israelites would learn to trust his voice and obey his word. Listen as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 to 3. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he may humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar to you? That is the very words, those are the very words that Jesus himself quoted when he was in his wilderness experience. And he was being tempted by the devil. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, Satan comes and he tempts Jesus. And he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In his wilderness experience, Jesus overcame the temptations of the devil by trusting and obeying the very word of God. And he calls us to do the same. You see, living is more than just filling your stomachs with physical food. No, no, no. You live by feeding from God's sacred word. You see, the Lord isn't giving the Israelites these instructions just to make things difficult for the sake of making things difficult. 
No, no, he's doing heart work here. He is teaching them that life is found by trusting in his word and walking in obedience to him. Living through this COVIDian wilderness may be a very trying time in your life. Circumstances are tough. Life is hard. The comfort that you once experienced, that beautiful Elim, is now far behind you. And maybe all that you see in front of you are more and more difficult times, and this journey through this barren land is filled with trials. But my dear brothers and sisters, be slow, ever so slow, to grumble in these days. Don't lose sight of the truth that God has you here for a good purpose. He is doing that often painful but life-giving surgery. He is exposing all of our cancerous sins and he is teaching us to trust in the hands of the great physician. And our Savior has beautiful hands and he is calling you to come and trust in him. Now here's the other thing. The end goal isn't to simply make you more trusting and obedient, but rather it is through your trust and obedience of the word of God that you would see God as the most wonderful and beautiful savior and that you would glorify his name. It is for the glory of God that he does put us through difficult trials in life. Look at verse six. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening, you shall know, he, he, he wants them to know something, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. When life is easy like Elam, we can often lose sight of our need for God And so he often pulls us into this wilderness experience to remind us of our daily need of him. Well, friends, I don't want you to lose sight of the reality that being in the wilderness is an opportunity for you to grow in a deeper and greater experience of God's grace in your life. But this comes with a warning. And the warning is this. Be careful of minimizing the sin of grumbling. Look at how Moses continues. Verse seven, for what are we that we grumble against, for what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against who? The Lord. It may have have been Moses and Aaron that have physically led the people out of Egypt, but ultimately we understand that behind them was a sovereign God who was appointing their every step, which means that when they are grumbling about their circumstances, they're not grumbling against Moses and Aaron, but they're grumbling against God. You know, I think sometimes we can view grumbling as a kind of lesser sin. It's not like, Adultery. It's not like murder. It's not like stealing or lying. But when you think about it, the sin of grumbling exposes a heart that either lacks faith in God or is displeased with the sovereignty of God. Do you realize that? The sin of grumbling exposes a heart that either lacks faith in God or is displeased with the sovereignty of God. 
Listen, you cannot with one voice sing praises to God for his sovereignty and in the very next voice grumble about the circumstances that you find yourselves in. That, my friends, is called hypocrisy. The circumstances may be tough and it may not be where you want to be, but God has a plan and a purpose to make you godlier and to show you his glory and that is a great reason why you shouldn't grumble in the wilderness. God has a good purpose for your life. Here's the second reason that you shouldn't grumble. It's because God will be present. Verse nine, then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. I mean, just stop there for a moment. Even though the Israelites were whining and complaining and grumbling, God still heard. He listened. He turned an attentive ear to their whining. Look, I I have three kids at home from the ages of zero to six. And if you've been in that season of life, you know that it can be a very chaotic environment. Kids bickering and and fighting against each other. And especially when they're they're tired and they lose a a sense of self-control, it can become a very loud, clamorous, grumbling, chaotic place to live in. And, and, and in my worst moments, there, there, there is that temptation to either lose it or just to, to walk away, just to separate myself from the situation and be, be in silence, be away from my family. But thank God that he is a far better father than I am. He is far more compassionate. He is infinitely more understanding and he is in another world when it comes to patience. He hears the grumbling of his children and he invites them near to him. He says, come near before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. Verse 10, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the clouds. You see, God doesn't just throw you into the wilderness and say, good luck, pal, and just leaves you to, 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 to hang out to dry. No, he's, he's present with you. As a matter of fact, he actually goes before you into the wilderness. When it says that they look toward the wilderness, the picture that you get is the Israelites. They're, they're standing on the edge of the wilderness and they're looking in. They're looking at the journey ahead of them, basically the next 40 years of their life. And the one who appears before them in the wilderness first is God himself. God isn't back there. God is in front of them leading the way. And even though he's going to bring his people into a barren and difficult land, he's saying, I'm there with you and I'm going to lead you through this difficult trial. A close friend of mine once had a terrifying experience years ago when his son got super sick. Uh, The son had a severe case of RSV, which if you know anything about it, it, it feels like a common cold for most adults, but it can be fatal in infants. And the son had RSV just a few months after he was born and they brought him to SickKids Hospital in, in downtown Toronto and they actually thought that they were going to lose their son. And by God's grace, the son recovered and he is well today. Praise the Lord for that. But a few years back when my friend was telling me about this experience of almost losing his son, he told me that he would never want anyone else to experience what he went through. 
And he would never want to go back and experience that again. But having gone through that experience, he said he would never change what happened because he has never felt more close to Jesus than in that hospital room when he thought he was going to lose his son. He never felt so close to the presence of God Almighty when the trials were the deepest and hardest in his life. God's presence is near. Even in the treacherous wilderness, God is there and he will not leave you nor forsake you. As a Christian, take heart and learn to lean into his grace. That wilderness experience that can often feel so lonely isn't really lonely at all when you realize that God is with you and he is a refuge and a strength and a very present help in times of trouble. Look at what happens next. The Lord hears, the Lord appears, and then he speaks. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So here's point number three. Don't grumble because God will provide. God is not one to make empty promises. We are talking about the ultimate and perfect promise keeper. As soon as he makes the promise to provide meat and bread, look at what happens in verse 13. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And the Lord said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Let me ask you a question. Can God provide a banquet in a barren land? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Don't miss this. It is the bread that the Lord, the God of heaven, has given you to eat. The provision of meat and bread, or what they would later call manna, is nothing short of supernatural because it came from God himself. God's provision is supernatural. Secondly, it is also perfectly sufficient. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take and you shall each take an omer. That's about two liters, if you want to think about contemporary measurements, two liters, like one of those big Coke bottles. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat." You see, the point here was that there was no lack in God's provision. No one was stuck wanting more and no one was stuck wanting less. They each had as much manna as they needed for the day. When God provides, he is not one to cheap out on grace when you need a lot of grace. When the Lord provides, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. 
Moses continues giving the Israelites instructions from the Lord. Verse 19 carries on, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. And and here, once again, is, is a part of their test. Whatever they gathered that day was something that was supposed to be eaten on the same day. There's no leftovers. There's no saving some for a later day. They were to wholeheartedly trust in God's supernatural and sufficient provision for them each and every single day. Verse 20, but they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. You see, God was calling them to trust in him and obey his every word. Not just the part of his word, but all of his words. But, but, but it's like they, the Israelites doubted and they got nervous. They're in the wilderness, and as they focus on the difficult circumstances, their faith in God steadily diminishes, and they do whatever they can to survive by their own means. They start to arrange their own plans, and they start to work things out with their own efforts. You see, they're they're, they're so worried about tomorrow that they take some of the bread from the present day, and they set it aside, and, and they keep their eyes on it, watching it until they fall asleep because it gives them a sense of security that tomorrow will be okay. But what happens when they awake the next morning? Their sense of security rots away along with the bread. Friends, let me ask you this question. What are the leftovers in your life? What are the things that you're keeping your eye on at night that gives you a sense of security and peace about tomorrow? Is it it money? Is it a relationship? Is it a job? Is it a status that you have in this life? There, There are so many things that can provide us with a false sense of eternal security. And if you put your trust in anything else but God, it is only a matter of time until you face the same disappointment the Israelites faced when they saw their rotting bread in the morning. God is calling us to trust in his provision day by day so that we would, with worshipful hearts, sing every morning, his mercies are new every morning. God's grace is sufficient for you every day. The wilderness experience is meant to teach you that. So don't be anxious about tomorrow. Don't grumble, rather trust God and obey his word. His provision is supernatural, His provision is sufficient. And thirdly, his provision also includes a Sabbath. This is a time to rest, a time to seize and desist from the grind of everyday life. And the Lord was going to make this possible by giving his people a double portion of what they needed on the sixth day. Verse 22, on the sixth day, they gather twice as much bread, two omers each, And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow, that is day seven, is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. 
And so they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. Now, what's remarkable here is that originally, the manna that didn't keep for an extra day was fine on this particular day. If you're gathering extra manna on day, from days one to five, then what happens? Everything rots the next day. But, ex- but on the sixth day, if you, if you gather the manna according to God's word, you bake what you bake, you boil what you boil, then the manna remained edible. And, and this is one of those small details that show us that this provision wasn't some sort of natural event. This was all governed by the hands of a sovereign, loving, and caring God who had the authority to either keep the bread or the authority to make the bread rot. But unfortunately, not everyone listened. Verse 27, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. I mean, you you think the Israelites would have learned by now to trust in God after all that he did. But but they don't, and some still go out looking for manna, and as a response to this, the Lord rebukes them. Verse 28, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will you, and and the you there is plural, he's talking to all the Israelites, how long will you all refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? Those words were meant to be a stinging rebuke to the Israelites because it was very similar to what God said to Pharaoh when Pharaoh hardened his heart to God's commands. In Exodus chapter 10, verse three, the Lord said to Pharaoh, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? You see, the Israelites were a lot more like Pharaoh than they realized. And as the saying goes, you can take Israel out of Egypt, but it's another thing to take Egypt out of Israel's heart. What the people failed to realize was that God was giving them this Sabbath command for their own good. This was for the people. Verse 29, see, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And so the people rested on the seventh day. Do you remember what Jesus said about the Sabbath to the Pharisees? He said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. We get this wrong all the time. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for Sabbath. In the midst of, his, of, of their wilderness experience, the Lord was gifting his people with rest. And this is one of those things that distinguish God from Pharaoh and their Egyptian taskmasters who made the Israelites work every single day, just work, work, work. Now, look, I I know that people have very different views of the Sabbath. So let me just say this, that a biblical understanding of the Sabbath begins with the understanding that God provides his people with rest. The problem today is that everyone seems to be so busy and and we're always complaining and grumbling about how, how tired we are with the million things we have to do and so little time to do it. And we forget that God knows our frame. He understands that we're made of dust. We're fragile and we need rest. And so he gives us a Sabbath rest. 
do you realize that your ability to rest is a demonstration in your trust in God? The world is so hurried and harried, especially in a place like Toronto. People don't know how to stop. It's, It's this hustle and bustle of everyday life. But when we as believers stop and we come together like this to to fellowship and worship, that is our Christian testimony to the world that our God is bigger than the busy burdens of life. So friends, learn to rest and trust that God will provide for you. God's provision is supernatural. It is sufficient. It includes a Sabbath rest. And lastly, it is sustaining Verse 31, now the whole, now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses. So Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Throughout the story of Exodus, the Lord gave his people different memory aids to remember all that he has done for them. For instance, God instituted the Passover so that they would remember their atonement. God instituted the Feast of Unleavened Bread to remember their deliverance. God instituted the consecration of the firstborn to remember their adoption. And God here commands his people to keep a jar of manna to remember that God provides and he provided for them for the full 40 years. God's provision was sustaining. He didn't just provide for his people for a week or for a month, but he took care of his people for the entire 40 years in the wilderness. You see, even if you're walking through the wilderness and the journey ahead of you seems so, so long and all you see is trial after trial after trial ahead of you, you don't need to grumble because God is going to take care of you all the way, the whole way. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, how could you ever doubt this when God has given you the bread of heaven? And I'm not talking about some manna that fell from the sky. If you see a bread fall from the sky, please don't pray to the Lord, thank him and eat the bread, okay? I'm not talking about bread that temporarily sustains your physical life. What I am talking about is the true bread of heaven that gives you everlasting life. Listen carefully as I read for us John chapter 6, verse 28. This is after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and a crowd follows him and they asked, verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent, whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what signs do you do that we may see and believe you, Jesus? 
What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Friends, let me ask you again. Can God provide a banquet in a barren land? Can God spread a table in the wilderness? John told us earlier that in, earlier in the chapter that these people came to Jesus looking for more bread, more physical bread after he fed the 5,000. And instead of giving them breads to fill their stomachs for maybe just a few hours, he offered himself as the bread of everlasting life. The Lord has given us the greatest provision of all through his son. Jesus is the father's supernatural provision. He is God the Son. He came down from heaven and he took on flesh and blood to save people who are made of flesh and blood. Jesus is the Father's sufficient provision. All you need is Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection is sufficient for you to deal with your sins. Jesus is our true and ultimate Sabbath rest. He calls all those who labor and are heavy laden to come and to find rest in him. And Jesus is the Father's sustaining provision for our souls. Every spiritual blessing in heaven is ours in Christ Jesus. If God has given us his own son, how will he, he, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Everything that you truly need can be found in Christ. Friends, Come to Jesus. He is not a bread that we are physically called to eat, but he is the spiritual bread of life that we are called to put our faith in, not only today, not only tomorrow, but every single day of our lives. Come to Jesus. And as you continue on in a wilderness experience, friends, don't despise the wilderness. Replace your grumbling with gratitude. Oh, some of you have been to the young adults retreat in the past and you heard my father-in-law speak. He's a, he's a hero to me pastorally. And one of the things that he said to me once was, Christians ought to be the happiest and most grateful people in the world. And I believe that's true. We ought to be the happiest and most joyful and grateful people in the world because we have Christ. So look to Christ, come to Christ, rejoice and replace your grumbling with gratitude. Let's pray. Father, we are so very thankful that you have given us the bread, the true bread of heaven, the bread of everlasting life in Christ. And because of Jesus, we can have a joy that is transcendent above our circumstances. So please keep us from grumbling because of our trials. 
please keep us from complaining because of the difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in. We know that's exactly how the world is going to respond, but you saved us to be a light, a shining light in this world. So I pray that in our joy, we would adorn the gospel. In our joy, we would show the world that Jesus is enough and that he is the bread of everlasting life. Oh Lord, I pray for Sovereign Grace Church that they would find their life in Christ always and that in this neighborhood, in this area, they would be known for their joy and for their heart of thanksgiving that abounds all the more because of your great grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.